0: You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Happy Pride
2: from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.
3: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, and I'm Deblina Chakraborty. And in our recent Roanoke update, we talked a little bit about how much we love an evolving history story. So something that's far in the past that still has the ability to have the story change through new research, new exploration, new discoveries. And in that episode, the discovery in question was a patched over portion of a map that was written in invisible ink. So real history sleuth kind of stuff that could hopefully offer new information about the lost colony at some point.
4: In this episode, though, which focuses on the sensational trial of Lizzie Borden, the new information comes from something much simpler, two leather-bound journals that just hadn't made their way into historians' hands until earlier this year. So Sarah and Katie recorded a podcast on Lizzie Borden in 2010. The young woman accused of killing her father and stepmother with an axe in 1892 was one of this podcast's top requests. Really? I mean up there with Tesla I know, and some I was other say, ones. For,
3: for recent listeners, I would compare Lizzie Borden to Tesla, but by 2011, so just a few months after the podcast, there were already updates to the story. A a book came out that year called Parallel Lives, and it was written by the curators of the Fall River Historical Society, which holds most of the Borden trial, Borden murder artifacts. And it contained plenty of previously unpublished information on Lizzie, including documents, photographs, even some letters that were written in her own hand. And Some of the letters had been written while she was in prison leading up to her trial. So a very um, specific time frame there, one where you'd be curious about what frame of mind she was in. And they did sort of shake up the general perception of Lizzie as a very cold, unfeeling person toward her family. According to one of the authors, Michael Martins, quote, there was a tremendous outpouring of grief in the letters, and that's a new side to the story.
4: But even more information started to come out earlier this spring, and that's when the Historical Society came into possession of the two journals that we just mentioned, which had spent most of the century stored in a Victorian bathtub. So we won't lead you on too much here. So far, there's not really any sort of smoking gun pointing to Lizzie's guilt, but there is some new insight into Lizzie's successful defense. But first... We're going to give a listen to the original episode on Lizzie, which provides the details about the murders, the trial, and some prevailing theories.
5: So check that out. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we're going to start off with a modified nursery rhyme here. If if you're ready, are you ready? Sarah? I'm ready for it. Okay. Okay. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 19 wax, And when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 10. Wait, that's
3: not much of a nursery rhyme. Well, it doesn't that's, even rhyme.
5: That's because the real rhyme, Sarah, is a lie. It says she gave her mother 40 wax and gave her father 41. That is not true. And
3: Lizzie Borden is one of the podcast topics that we have always resisted. We probably get this request maybe more than any other topic. I don't know. I don't want to... I don't want to put one above the other, but it's way, way up there, along with Jack the Ripper, that
5: kind of thing. But the subject has never interested us much because, you know, here's the story. A woman was accused of brutally murdering her parents and hacking their faces to pieces. But
3: she's acquitted, and we still don't know if she really did it. That's that's the whole story. And that's kind of your standard nightly news fair. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's something that happens... Almost every day. When, of course, the story of someone who murders
5: a family member is nothing new. You know, we've got Cain and Abel and Caligula and Drusilla. But we had to rethink our point of view, because if so many of you are captivated by this story, there must be a reason why. And we aim to put our
3: prejudices aside and try to find it. So here we go. Okay, the basics of our case. On August fourth, 1892, in Fall River, Massachusetts, a woman is brutally murdered in her home with a hatchet. Not long after, her husband meets the same fate while he's asleep on a couch in his living room. The main suspect is their 32-year-old daughter, Lizzie Borden, and we have a few possible motives money, the father was a very wealthy man, or hatred of the stepmother, stepmother, that's a crucial part to this story. Or a combination of the two. A combination of the two, yeah. So the jury's verdict is acquittal, and that's probably the main reason why people are so fascinated with this story. What really happened? How did Lizzie Borden get acquitted? So, a
5: little family background to start with. Uh, Sarah Anthony Morse married Andrew Jackson Borden the Christmas of 1845, and they had three children together, Emma, Alice, and Lizzie. Alice died at the age of two, and Sarah herself died when Lizzie was about three, so she never got to know her mother. And as Sarah mentioned, Andrew was very wealthy. He owned property. He had holdings in textiles and banking. He directed corporations. And one would imagine that made
3: him an attractive prospect for a husband. And so it did. Plus, he has two young girls. And so Lizzie's father remarries, and he marries Abby Durfee. And Lizzie was about five at the time, and Emma, the older sister, about 14. And according to Lizzie's testimony of the inquest, Emma always called her stepmother Abby, but Lizzie always called her mother until about five or six years before the murder went down. So make of that what you will. But it seems like this is a woman who she thought of as her mother for most of her life. And again,
5: later when the DA, Hosea Knowlton asked if Lizzie's relationship with her stepmother was cordial, she replied, it depends upon one's idea of cordiality, perhaps, which isn't exactly the picture of a happy home. But Emma in her trial testimony said that their relationship was cordial and that Lizzie and her father had a very good one. So we're going to give you the outline of if she did it, this is what happened.
3: Okay, so here's, here's just a basic starting fact. Lizzie and Emma both admitted that they were upset about their father giving one of his properties to Abby and her sister instead of them. They're both older, they're unmarried, and they expected their elderly father would provide for them and set them up for the rest of their life financially. And according to some, there was this rumor that he was going to change his will in favor of his wife, and that might cause a few family problems, I'd say. So on August 3rd, which was the day before the murders, Lizzie attempted
5: to buy prussic acid, a poison, from pharmacist Eli Bentz. And he refused her, but the Bordens and their maid, Bridget Sullivan, all reported
3: feeling sick that day and the next morning. (laughs) (laughs) Da, da, da. So, <laughs> <laughs> on August 4th, Emma was in Fairhaven, Massachusetts, but there were a few other people around, uh, the maid we just mentioned, Bridget, but also, kind of randomly, the deceased Sarah's brother, John Moore, so Lizzie's Um, Uncle from her Lizzie's uncle on her mom's side Uh, He's visiting He had arrived the night before But he left in the morning To go visit another cousin So he's not around When the murders go down But he's there immediately before And then he comes back So he's there after Andrew Borden, her father Left the house that morning as well To
5: get some business done in town Abby stayed in the house And she began doing chores uh, And headed to the guest room To make the bed You know, put on pillow shams Tidy up And she asked Bridget to wash the outsides of the windows. So she's in the house. Bridget is outside the house. The only other person who's inside the house is Lizzie Borden.
3: Okay, so according to Lizzie's story, at this point, Abby received a note from some messenger, we don't know who, calling her to some sick person's home. We don't know the sick person either. And Abby left the house on this errand. But this is where our events are going to, start down like if Lizzie did it here's what happened so what happened then if, if Lizzie did it is she found Abby on the second floor hit her from behind with an axe and then hacked her 18 more times
5: And she left the body, she cleaned herself up and the axe. She knew her father probably wouldn't come home for a while, Uh, it ended up being an hour and a half. So in the meantime, she did some reading and some ironing and some sewing, you know how you spend the time between murders. (laughs) And when he returned, Bridget unlocked the door for him. And as she did, she heard Lizzie laughing on the second floor landing after she had killed her stepmother.
3: Right, so Lizzie told Andrew that his wife had received that note and had gone off on that errand, and she settled him down on the couch and tried to convince Bridget to go out of the house. There was supposedly a really good sale on ribbons. Ribbon sale. Who can resist a <laughs> ribbon sale? Entice the maid. But Bridget isn't interested. She instead goes to the attic, probably worn out from all that window washing and her upset stomach from the poison the night before. But Possible poison. Possible Sarah. poison. Um, <laughs> but so after Lizzie settled her father on the couch, he falls asleep. And then, supposedly, she hits him in the face and head with the axe ten times, so hard that she snaps the handle off the axe. But then, in
5: ten minutes, according to the timeline that the police tried to put together based on what everyone said they were doing that day and... and. Uh, Lizzie's own conflicting testimony, she would have had to clean herself off her clothes and the murder weapon in 10 minutes. And only after then... After axing someone 10 times. See, I imagine that would be... A messy scene? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And only after this did she call to Bridget for help and announce that her father had died. She didn't say anything about Abby because she thought that Abby had left the house. She's off on
3: that errand. So... Now we're going to move on to the bodies and the scene, and this is pretty disturbing stuff, but Abby had a five-inch hole in her skull, and her head and her face were completely unrecognizable. She was lying face down in coagulated blood, and her clothes were soaked in it, and the bed and the pillow sham next to her were all bloody and the wall and the chair and the bureau all covered in blood uh, just a small disturbing
0: detail. Her braid had even been hacked off.
2: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.
1: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on a Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Haya. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
6: This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles.
5: And Andrew was on his back on a lounge, his face turned as he slept, and his face and head, too, were no longer recognizable. You can find pictures of the crime scene online, uh, if you so desire, which you very well might not. Uh, The axe had gone through his cheekbone, it had severed his eye in half, Uh, there was blood dripping onto the floor and from the sofa and on the walls, a painting on the wall, the ceiling, the door... And it was still wet and flowing when others entered the scene, which is why we assume that Abby had died first and he had died second. But it seems very personal to attack only a person's face
3: and head to us. Definitely, and and so many times, too. But here's an important detail. The rooms were perfectly in order. There was no sign of a break-in, no sign of a struggle. It seemed likely that whoever did this knew the couple. And also, the Bordens kept all of their
5: doors locked all of the time, and supposedly, this is because there had been a theft in the home, and perhaps Lizzie had a history of shoplifting, uh,
3: so their house was always on lockdown. Which paints a a rather disturbing scene for the house, too, I'd say. Make her move out. Not well, And don't (laughs) think of it just as like the front door is locked, like a normal house would be, but all of the rooms and everything just completely locked down all the time. So, and if it is all locked, the person probably would have had to be in the house the whole time. Yeah, exactly. So after the murders... Lizzie called for Bridget after this 10-minute window we have and then sent Bridget to go get the family doctor, Dr. Bowen. Bridget couldn't find the doctor or he wasn't there. She comes back without him. And then Lizzie sent her out again, this time to get a family friend, Alice Russell. But in the meantime, their neighbor, Adelaide Churchill, showed up and she went off for help. So just imagine... All of these people sort of coming in and out, but large periods of time where Lizzie is in the house by herself, possibly doing anything. Dr. Bowen does
5: come to the house finally, and Bridget and Adelaide return, and they're the ones who discover Abby's body Upstairs, because, of course, that police officer asked Lizzie, when's the last time you saw your mother? She said oh, no. She went off
3: on the My stand. stepmother.
5: Yeah, and she said she was gone from the house, but the last time she'd seen her was in the guest room. So the maid and their neighbor go upstairs and find Abby's body.
3: And you can imagine, we've already listed all of these people who are at the crime scene, soon enough we have more officers, more neighbors and onlookers. Everyone is trampling all over everything. Police are walking through the crime scenes. The evidence, whatever evidence there would have been is completely contaminated. And one, Katie just kind of mentioned mentioned, this, yeah. yeah. An officer on the scene asked Lizzie when she had last seen her mother, and she was very careful to say no, it's my stepmother, and she said her mother died when she was a baby. And this turns out to be a really big piece of evidence, or at least it's, it keeps coming up. It's in turned into a big piece of evidence, but I don't know how much how much there is to that. Maybe she was just trying to be very precise. Yeah, with I mean, her Abby are. is her stepmother, no matter what kind of relationship they had. So no one
5: thought Lizzie was guilty, and instead all manner of suspicious characters are implicated. Lizzie had mentioned an angry tenant that she'd heard with her father. Others recalled seeing suspicious men near the house recently, including a mysterious Portuguese farmhand who perhaps was the fiendish murderer that ends up not panning out. And another Portuguese guy had recently killed someone in town, so... They thought maybe it was him and arrested a different one, so try not to be Portuguese around the Borden murders. But in early newspaper accounts, they said that Lizzie had been in the barn, she came into the house, she saw her father's body, rushed upstairs, and found her mother's. And then they recounted any possible theory this angry tenant a man who'd been sleeping in the hayloft and planning these murders, someone who was poisoning the family's milk, some kind of trickster who sent Abby this note to try to get her out of the house and commit other sinful deeds and and go after Mr. Borden.
3: Yeah, and the newspapers aren't... Suggesting Lizzie as the possible murderer at all at this point. According to the Boston Herald, quote, in Lizzie Borden's life, there is not one unmaidenly nor a single deliberately unkind act. So people were pretty confident it was not this well bred young woman, it was some sort of dastardly man. Preferably a Portuguese farmhand. Mysterious a, foreigner. Just a, a mysterious man who's briefly in town. It couldn't be Lizzie Borden herself. But the evidence starts piling up because who else
5: could have done it? According to this timeline and all the other aspects like the the locked doors, she was pretty much the only one. And this mysterious man theory begins to seem a little thin. There Lizzie's.
3: is isn't a good mysterious man around. No,
5: and she's emerging as the most likely suspect, especially after her inquest testimony. So the inquest was August 9th, and it's Hosea Knowlton questioning her and also Bridget and John Morse and some of the others. And Lizzie continually contradicts herself about times and the sequence of events, and she says some very odd things. She seems
3: confused by the questions and was disquietingly calm. Yeah. And just a few days later, on the 11th of August, she was arrested and claimed she was not guilty. By August 22nd, there was a preliminary hearing. And at that, the judge said, well, she probably is guilty and she's going to have to go in front of a grand jury. But the grand jury wouldn't agree to actually meet until they got this. Just sort of decisive account from Alice Russell, and Alice Russell said she was the the friend and neighbor. Remember, she said that she saw Lizzie burning a dress in the kitchen just a few days after the murder. So once the grand jury hears that, they're like, "All right, here's an indictment. We better hear, (laughs) we better hear what Lizzie has to say." The trial began
5: June fifth, eighteen ninety three, and again some more fabulous newspaper quotes um, in the Boston Herald. Quote, her dark, lustrous eyes, ordinarily flashing, were dimmed, and her pale face was evidence of the physical suffering she was undergoing and had experienced. Poor Lizzie.
3: Poor Lizzie. So the prosecution was led by Josea Knowlton and William Moody. The defense led by Andrew Jennings, Melvin Adams, and George Robinson. And Moody told the jury that Lizzie had planned the murders, committed the murders, and then couldn't even keep her story straight. And they hadn't seen a tear from her. You know, she was not reacting as a woman in this position should. She hated her stepmother. She wanted her father's money. That's the story that they were presenting, but there are
5: plenty of things that Lizzie had going for her. Starting with, she's this woman of breeding from a good family. She has those newspaper quotes. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> she had plenty of character recommendations, and not many people thought a woman was capable of hacking someone's face to pieces. You know, poison sounds like a a nice feminine way to kill someone. Uh, not a hatchet. And
3: then we have the character references coming in here, too. So her sister and her uncle and the maid all said that she had a good relationship with Andrew and Abby. There was no motive to kill either of them. And then this is sort of the crucial thing. They didn't have the murder weapon. They have some axes. Of course, there are plenty
5: around if you've got a barn. And they've got one that doesn't have a handle, but there's no blood anywhere on it.
3: And we're missing the handle. So it could be the axe, but it could just be a broken axe sitting around from farm work. And we also have no blood on her clothes or her shoes.
5: We have nothing, no blood so on Lizzie Borden. It's not a really great case for the prosecution. It's all completely circumstantial.
3: And then this is the the killer thing here. Her, inqu- <laughs> yes, <laughs> nope, sorry. Unintended. her inquest testimony, which is what, of course, made the judge think, she needed to go in front of a grand jury in the first place, was ruled inadmissible in court. And that's because the judge believed that she had been treated as a prisoner instead of as a suspect while she was having her inquest. and should right. like she
5: wasn't just a witness. She was under questioning. Yeah,
3: and should have had an attorney present. Since she didn't, he didn't think that they could uh, actually take her inquest seriously. Well, and as a side note, Dr. Bowen had dosed her
5: with morphine before this inquest to keep her calm. But obviously that could have made her kind of loopy. So, I mean, that could explain her contradictory well, story testimony and why everything c- kind
3: of confused her. But uh, the prosecution was saying, even in her inquest, she denied everything. There wasn't anything in the inquest. No confession. Yeah, she wasn't uh, coerced into confessing to these murders in it, because she's all doped up on morphine. If she didn't confess to it, then why couldn't they use it? That was their their point. But the testimony was excluded, and also ruled inadmissible was
5: Eli Bentz, uh, the pharmacist, his testimony about her trying to buy poison from him. These are two key points that are missing from that entire trial. So
3: that loopy inquest and the poison fact, which seems very significant. So there is still a fair amount of evidence against her, though. According to Bridget, the the maid, there was no way anyone else could have gotten into the house during the timeline of the day without being seen. And Lizzie was simply the only person who would have had access.
5: And I also thought it was very strange that Lizzie didn't wonder where her mother went And that she was also in the house and didn't hear her being murdered and falling to the ground. You know, maybe after you come across your father's body, you begin to wonder what happened to your mother.
3: Yeah, or you would just hear her falling upstairs. But the family may have said that Lizzie and Abby had a pretty okay relationship, but others were testifying, no. Lizzie hated her stepmother. And the friend, the family friend, Alice Russell, said that Lizzie had come to her the night before the killings and said, quote, I feel afraid something is going to happen.
0: Happy
2: Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.
1: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love.
6: So
3: starting to paint a darker picture of Lizzie's psychological state before this. Lizzie also said that she
5: had been in the barn during the time of her father's homicide. But when officers went to investigate the loft, it was very dusty and there were no footprints but the officers' own, uh, which seemed a little bit strange. And it was also extremely hot in there. She'd claimed to have been there for 30 minutes on this silly errand looking for lead for sinkers, which... Again, something's not quite right there.
3: Yeah, maybe not an errand or a, a chore you'd do in the middle of the day. And then there's that note, which seems uh, very sketchy indeed. The note that Lizzie said Mrs. Borden received. No one ever found the note. No one ever figured out who the messenger was. No one ever even figured out who the sick person was who needed visiting in the first place. There was a reward offered. Nobody came forward with any news.
5: And again her timeline that day made no sense and the dress Alice saw her burning she said it had paint on it just doing a little wardrobe I cleaning a few days murder, after murders yeah. <laughs> and it could very well of course have been blood and the dress that she gave the police and said she was wearing that day wasn't the dress
3: she was wearing at all at the time of the
5: murders it, it
3: was a much too it was silky and kind of a nice dress not the sort of thing you'd not wear a chore dress around the house And then Lizzie was eerily calm during the whole trial. According to the New York Times, quote, the most remarkable feature of the trial has been the demeanor of Lizzie Borden. From start to finish, she has manifested no feeling of weakness and has listened to the recital of the most cold-blooded and shocking details of the crime with a perfectly impassive and unmoved countenance. I maintain it could have been shock. Could have been shock. But here we, we do start to see the papers turn a little bit against her. So... She does fate when the skulls of her parents were revealed, but they consider that a point for her. Yeah.
5: There are some rebuttals as far as that whole uh, dusty hayloft thing. There were some uh, men doing work uh, a few days before the murders, and they were like, listen, we were in there, and there are no footprints of ours either, so this is a ridiculous piece of evidence. And also, would a killer be that open about burning a dress in the kitchen? That was the other point. Wouldn't she be sneakier about it?
3: you got to get rid of the dress. you got to get rid of it.
5: And again, where's our bloody hatchet? Where's this axe handle that supposedly came off from the force of the blows? How could she wash herself, her clothes, and a murder weapon in about 10 minutes before she called Bridget? Some people were like, maybe she did it naked, and that's how. But, I mean, come she on. She certainly
3: paints a wilder scene. <laughs> and then one more final important rebuttal. Andrew was a really rich guy, so it's not too unlikely that somebody might have something against him, or want to get money somehow. And then some people did say that they had seen suspicious characters, just nobody they could specifically name hanging around the house right before the murders.
5: When again, this is all circumstantial evidence, and there is a reasonable doubt. And I think we can all agree, if we were on that jury, we would have thought the same thing. And the judge agreed, and Lizzie was acquitted.
3: So picking up with Lizzie's life after the murders. What happens after a trial like this and sensational murders like this? Emma and Lizzie bought
5: a nice house together in Fall River. Lizzie named it Maplecroft and changed her name to Lisbeth. Emma became very involved in church, but eventually moved out. They had some sort of falling out or argument, um, possibly because Lizzie had a relationship with an actress. And Emma changed her name as well. And they died
3: only nine days apart, which is one of those spooky little... Connected to the end in this bizarre little thing. So there you go, guys. Lizzie Borden episode. And, I mean, we've got to think about sort of modern connections to what we see in the news, right? Well, and, and why it's so important. I mean, today,
5: like you mentioned earlier, when you're looking at the news, the murder of a child or a spouse or a parent is unfortunately all too common. And after a while, maybe the horror of that stops being so shocking. And maybe it's easier to contemplate a crime like this with the safety that distance provides. You're looking back at it in time. It's not so present. And this has become such a part of American lore that we've got a nursery rhyme about it.
3: Yeah. Lizzie Borden has become a cult of a cult nursery figure. rhyme, maybe. Just yeah, <laughs> plain not, rhyme. Not what you sing <laughs> in the nursery. Um, I know I visited Salem about a year and a half ago and Lizzie Borden is not from Salem, but there are all these shops with Lizzie Borden memorabilia and, you know, this hologram things where it's this staid portrait of a nice buttoned up Lizzie Borden and then it's like scary axe oh, portrait, God. that kind of thing. I think it, it just, she's a cult figure. She's caught people's attention somehow.
5: And, of course, we're always fascinated by gore and violence, human beings in general, not just Sarah and I, <laughs> um, but also by what is unsolved, because, you know, we like to tie up loose ends, we like to find our answers. Uh, but in this case, the only real, satisfying answer would be for Lizzie Borden to appear right before us and say, yes, I did it,
3: perhaps in hologram form. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I hope it would just be the real her, but that's the answer we can't have.
3: Okay, so now that we've listened to the older podcast, Katie and I really discussed in depth uh, the perception of Lizzie as as cold and unfeeling, and how that sort of changed over over um, the course of the trial. So clearly, the letters and other documents from last year have somewhat altered that perception of her. She did seem to be grieving, although naturally that doesn't totally get her off the hook for anyone still speculating on this too. Just because you're grieving doesn't mean you didn't do it, but. It's the new info that really might change perceptions about this case, I think.
4: Yeah, after the trial, Lizzie's lawyer, Andrew Jackson Jennings, wound up with much of the evidence, the stained pillow shams, the hatchet with its handle broken off, and he kept all of this, plus his two leather journals, one which contained an annotated newspaper clippings, a collection of annotated newspaper clippings, and the other contained his handwritten notes, and all of this was in a Victorian tub, as we mentioned in the intro. you
3: wouldn't want to put all this kind of grisly stuff in your closet, I guess. Of course not, you just <laughs> can't
4: live it in, leave it in any random place, but... But his daughter, Marion Jennings Waring, left most of the collection to the Fall River Historical Society in the 1960s. But then his grandson, Edward Waring, held on to the journals himself since he was afraid researchers would be unable to read his grandfather's messy handwriting and then they might misquote him. So he was worried about this stuff and just decided to hang on to it. Mr. Waring died, though, in late 2011, leaving the journals to the society in his will.
3: So since that point, curator Michael Martins has been able to examine some of what's contained inside, although the journals are still too fragile to read entirely. They need to be better preserved first. And according to the Boston Globe, Martin says, quote, it's the only file Jennings retained, and it's the first idea we have about how the defense went about building its case. So clearly those annotated news clippings in that first journal might be of interest to historians, considering how much the uh, press reaction. To the trial transformed over its course. So, um, you know, we might be able to find out what concerned Lizzie's lawyer, what was being printed about her at the time that uh, caught his attention.
4: But the real kicker is Jennings' list of people interviewed for the case and his notes on those interviews. According to Martins and ABC News, quote, a number of the people Jennings spoke to were people he knew intimately on a social or business level. So many of them were perhaps more candid with him than they would have been otherwise. But it's also evident that there are a number of new individuals he spoke to who had previously not been connected with the case.
3: So new Witnesses. I mean, new kinds of information here, and possibly, um, possibly, some kind of information about why these people weren't involved in the case publicly. Yeah, why, kind of
4: inside scoop.
3: Why did her lawyer not want them involved? So Jennings also peppered the 100-page written journal with a lot of his own insights, and uh, just, I mean, it gives you a sense of that. Just the fact that he knew a lot of the people um, involved pretty closely. He had some insights himself. So for instance, he wrote about how Andrew Borden had always spoken of his girls, and he'd call them his girls, quite fondly and provided for them well. So that slightly debunks the miser theory. You know, Andrew Borden was well off, but he was supporting his, his adult daughters. And then um, he also supposedly mentioned how much he liked receiving letters from them, how much he enjoyed that. So As of this spring, the journals hadn't been entirely reviewed yet, even though the Society does plan to eventually publish them. So maybe by that time, by the time the whole thing comes out, uh, we'll be ready for another update to this podcast. You guys keep us updated on it. This was one one of those episodes that we got a lot of suggestions for it before it came out, but then we got a lot of links and news stories sent to us uh, when all this new information appeared. Yeah, people
4: really love, gruesome as it is, people really love this story and just continue to want to find out more about it. Incidentally, Lizzie was big in the news for another reason this spring, too, though. Maplecroft, the 14-room Queen Anne she lived in after her acquittal, is up for sale for $650,000.
3: So, if you're a really big Lizzie Borden buff, <laughs> there you go. Um so, if you have any new information to to share with us or any thoughts on this case, you know, why it continues to fascinate people, while it, why it continues to fascinate you if it does, let us know. We're at History Podcast at discovery.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History and we're on Facebook and if you want to learn a
4: little bit more about the techniques that people might use to solve a crime like this today, we have an article called How Blood Stain Pattern Analysis Works. And you can find that by searching on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com.
3: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
2: From Tomboy X, we just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer-founded, queer-run, and creating size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies, so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.
1: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Haya. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say "free" this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
6: This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org.
1: This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride with Samel Bogris